Hello, I'm John Rossi, a touring drummer with a love of all things animal. When I'm on the road, I visit as many zoos, aquariums. Hey, wait a minute. What's going on? Hey, what's going on there? Hello? Hello? We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to bring you Rossafari Zoo News. News you can use from the world of zoos and conservation. Every week, we bring you breaking news and analysis from around the globe, featuring the animals you love and the people who care for them. And here's your anchorman, John Rossi. Greetings. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to Rossafari Zoo News, the weekly look at zoo and conservation news from the Rossafari podcast, which explains the whole name of it, really. Yeah. And um, I'm excited about today. Only a couple of zoo news stories, but oh boy, do I have a conservation section for y'all. Plus some really cool other news that is, uh, you know, the other news that we talk about. As always, please keep in mind that you can uh, share your zoo and conservation news stories with me. Uh, tag me in them on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at Rossafari. Uh, go ahead. You could also message them to me or email them directly to me, rossafaripod at gmail.com. Uh, yeah, and that's that's how you can get this news to me. And then I will say your name at the end of the episode. And it's this beautiful symbiotic relationship. That is especially helpful on weeks like this one when I am doing a ton of interviews for next season and had a two-show day today on Wednesday and and still have to get an episode out by tonight, which uh, is why we'll be changing Zoo News to Fridays starting with season two. Uh, my head might explode if I don't do that. And you see, friends, that right there is why you turn into the podcast. Am I running incredibly late and really stressed about getting this episode done on time? Yes. Yes, I am. Did I still just pause for 20 minutes to find a sound effect that kind of sounded kind of like a head exploding? Even though, let's be honest, it really didn't. Yes, yes, I did. And that is the quality and the care that I put into this podcast twice a week, which is why you all come back, right? Right? No? No? Okay, then then here's this. Well, it's one for the pennies, two for the bears, three for the monkeys. Now you should care, now won't you listen to Zoo News? Oh, you could do anything, but why not listen to Zoo News? We start off this week's Zoo News with some really exciting news out of both Zoo Boise and the Potter Park Zoo. Twin red panda cubs were born at both facilities this week. To, to be clear, I mean that there was a set of twins born at each facility. There wasn't some weird thing where twins were born hundreds of miles apart. Uh, anyway, this is especially exciting this year because, uh, you know, COVID actually stopped a lot of animals from moving in time to hit the breeding window uh, that red pandas have. And so there are probably going to be a lot less red panda cubs born into captivity this year than there normally are. Uh, so it's really exciting that these two pairs, both of whom had a breeding recommendation and already lived at the same facility uh, as each other, uh, were able to make that happen. And so, so far, there are four new little red panda cubs out in the world. Um, Highly recommend checking out Instagram or Facebook, Potter Park Zoo and Zoo Boise, because there are pictures and videos and ridiculous adorableness abounding. 
And while we're on the subject of red pandas, my favorite subject, uh, the trailer for Pixar's Turning Red dropped this week. It's a teaser trailer. Show you a little bit of it. You'll get to see um, the red panda in it. I've talked about this movie before, so if this is news to you, just go check it out. And also check out in my bio the article that I wrote for Red Panda Network about how this movie can lead to greater conservation messaging for red pandas uh, in the general public. It's really exciting. But uh, that's not really zoo newsy stuff. I just like talking about red pandas. So there you go. Baby pandas and a new Pixar movie all at once. Yay. And much like life itself, we go from birth to death because unfortunately there is a sad story coming out of Tampa Bay this week. The Florida Aquarium announced that it'll leave no stone unturned in their efforts to understand the tragic course of events after seven penguins died for unknown reasons. The seven African penguins passed away due to currently unknown causes, although the aquarium and other authorities are investigating. But, as the aquarium announced in their own post about this, they truly may never get to know the cause, which is scary and heartbreaking all at once. Sending condolences and love to everyone at the Florida Aquarium, where I literally just visited like two weeks ago and was quite impressed. Uh, It's a great facility, and I'm sure whatever happened here was a fluke. Hopefully one that they can fix and stop any other issues from happening with their collection. This next story comes out of Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago, and it's just such a sweet story about the efforts made to conserve species and individuals by zoos. There are two piping plovers, which are a type of bird uh, that live in Chicago that have gotten kind of famous. Their names are Monty and Rose, and they nest in Montrose Beach. In mid-June, it was noticed by remote camera that there were four eggs in Monty and Rose's nest. Of course, they were left alone to do their thing, and after a while, three chicks successfully hatched. They were all out by July 8th, and uh, Monty and Rose were taking good care of them. However, a day later, as the adult pair realized that they needed to take care of their three kids, they completely halted incubation efforts on the remaining egg. Upon seeing this, scientists from Lincoln Park Zoo, in association with the Department of Fish and Wildlife, decided to take the remaining egg to the zoo to determine viability. The egg was seen as viable and was placed in a hatcher, and on July 10th, the chick was born late, but strong, healthy, and vocal. After giving the chick a clean bill of health, it was determined that the chick would be returned to Monty and Rose and its three siblings. Upon release, Rose immediately began brooding and caring for the chick as she had for her other three. Piping plovers are an endangered species, so even saving one extra individual in the wild, especially one that is still able to be raised by its parents, is a huge deal. But at the same time, it's just, it's why I love this, because it's a zoo going out to save one bird and making this huge, extraordinary effort. And, ah, it's just the kind of story that I love. And then finally for Zoo News, we have some really cool information from the AZA about community-based conservation efforts during COVID. Many zoos, including Utah's Hogel Zoo, Woodland Park Zoo, 
Brookfield Zoo, uh, Lincoln Park Zoo, and others have found that a huge number of people became interested in participating in community-based conservation efforts through their zoos during the COVID lockdown. There are a variety of reasons for this. For starters, uh, technology changed things. Hogel Zoo in particular used to do some in-person trainings for their community-based conservation efforts, and a lot of people couldn't attend them because of job hours or just being busy. However, when they went virtual for their trainings uh, during the pandemic, more people than ever signed up, participated, and got involved. And now they have switched to a full-time hybrid learning process for new volunteers in order to encourage the numbers to stay up. Other zoos noticed that because they had to go digital while their doors were shut and share their educational stuff online, they ended up sharing more about their community-based conservation efforts, and that got people really interested because they were watching the videos and started signing up in record numbers. Other zoos, such as Woodland Park Zoo, came up with scavenger hunts that people could do in the wild looking for certain things that they are researching and thus helping grow their database of where those animals can be found while at the same time engaging the public in something that would keep them interested, occupied, and out of crowded spaces. It's kind of cool to look back at the last year and a half and all of the pain and suffering that uh, happened during it and realize that at least some positives came from it in the conservation world. And the more people that we have involved in community-based conservation, the more people there are trying to save animals and save the planet. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And now... Stereotypical Animal Podcast theme song. Rhode Island has banned the releasing of 10 or more helium or other lighter than balloons outside in an effort to protect wildlife. The new rule goes into effect in November, but let's be honest, we shouldn't be releasing balloons starting immediately, starting before this law, starting in Rhode Island or elsewhere. Uh, balloons are really bad for animals, y'all. It gets into the water and can really mess with, uh, sea life and pond life. It can also just cause problems with, um, wildlife that try to eat it and get it ingested in them or even get entangled in the balloons and their strings. So, uh, no more releasing large numbers of balloons in Rhode Island. Unfortunately, there's only a $100 fine if you violate this rule, but hey, it's a start and every little bit helps, right? This next story is kind of weird, um, not in that it's bad news or weird news, but in that it exists. Uh, so I had this sent to me from a couple of people, which is why I decided to go ahead and, and do it. Um, but according to China, the giant panda is no longer endangered, but is considered threatened or vulnerable. This made news this past week because Chinese officials have officially announced this move on their own list. However, the reason I say it is weird is that if you've listened to all these episodes, you know that I frequently use giant pandas as a great example of how conservation efforts can work because they were an incredibly endangered species that as of 2014 is now considered threatened and not endangered. The International Union for Conservation of Nature, 
often referred to as IUCN, is the group that runs the Red List worldwide that keeps track of the endangered status of various species. Uh, And as I mentioned, they made this change all the way back in 2014 when uh, there were a lot more pandas in the wild than had been seen before, and there was a 17% rise in population in the decade up to it. So this is kind of old news, but it's cool that China is recognizing it. And um, I, I mean, hey, a conservation win is a conservation win, whether it happened in 2014 or 2021. So I thought I'd put it out there. Yay, giant pandas no longer being endangered. Now let's make sure that happens with red pandas, too, because they're the real panda. Now, y'all may remember that I love me some ear tufts, right? Bintrongs, one of my favorite animals, have them. And just in general, tufted ears make me really happy. That is why I am so excited that a recovery plan has been introduced for caracals in India. Caracals in Africa, and in the savannah in Africa specifically, are doing pretty well overall. However, in India, the caracal has become an endangered animal. In fact, they are considered so critically endangered that the National Board for Wildlife in India has announced a recovery plan for the population that is going to include breeding, habitat protection, and more. It will all start with a population study to figure out exactly what the numbers of caracals in India are. And then after this, there will be a study of the habitats to figure out the best ways to help preserve and protect them. And then a breeding program will be set up for the cats that will include wild breeding and also possibly captive breeding with the plan to re-release. I hereby humbly submit the idea that they should name this program Save the Tufted Ears. But... I doubt they will. But still, it's really cool to know that caracals are going to be given a chance to grow their population in India. A new study recently released has shown that climate change is actually harming animals and possibly people, which are animals, worse than we thought. The study delves into fly infertility, and it shows exactly how we are underestimating how climate change can harm fertility rates amongst various species. The research shows that males of various species can become infertile at less extreme temperatures than it takes for a species to die off because of the change in climate. These findings are incredibly important because generally we use population die-offs as examples of why climate change is affecting populations. But in this case, it might mean that we're having infertility issues well before we see the die-off, which is obviously going to lead to extinction in the wild. A variety of species is being studied for this, and um, there are some that show real problems with just a few degree temperature change. For instance... Corals can have uh, less sperm production and messed up egg cells if the temperature rises by 2 degrees Celsius. And in many beetle and bee species, fertilization success drops sharply when temperatures rise. High temperatures have also been shown to affect fertilization, <laughs> um, fertilization or sperm counts, which I apparently just portmanteaued into spertilization, which I kind of like, so I'm leaving in here. Anyway, spertilization gets messed up in cows, pigs, fish, and a variety of bird species. 
The scientists in question also did a ton of studies on flies, and the results were devastating. Without going into a ton of detail, the scientists are not entirely sure that their findings would uh, extrapolate to many other species, including mammals, including humans, obviously. Um, But it is very possible. And either way, unless global warming is radically curbed, animal fertility will likely decline. This means Earth may be heading for far more species extinctions than previously anticipated. No thank you. But hey, in an effort to save species, uh, Wild Animal Health Fund, our lovely friends, are stepping it up again. They recently posted this thing that I just found fascinating. I'm I'm literally just going to read it. We all know the disastrous impact of COVID-19 on human populations, but what about animals? Some animal populations have been devastated by the virus, while others, like gorillas, have only self-limiting infections, a disease that tends to go away on its own. The role of animals as incidental hosts is largely unknown. And this means the zoo veterinarian community has a unique opportunity and responsibility to use their collective expertise in order to better understand what species could be susceptible to COVID-19. And who's funding that research? You guessed it, the Wild Animal Health Fund. This specific study will use archival tissue to determine the presence, density, and distribution of receptors for SARS-CoV-2 in various wildlife and zoo species. How cool is that? You know, I find this next story kind of fascinating. Um, I remember back when I was in school... And we were taught about how indigenous people tended to have this great connection with their lands and nature in general. It turns out that while that is true, it's also not as much a part of history class as it should be a part of a current events class. Because indigenous populations all around the world are actually the world's biggest conservationists. A recent study has shown that roughly 21% of all land is still owned or at least lived on by indigenous people, and that those people in their local communities always take good care of conservation efforts, take good care of their animals and their plants, and thus are protecting 21% of the land that we have on this planet. In comparison, uh, protected and conservation areas overseen by countries cover just 14% of all land on Earth. Uh, This includes things like national parks and protected forests and animal sanctuaries and all that good stuff. So first of all, it's kind of crazy to think that there's as much as 35% of the land on this planet that is currently considered protected, but even crazier to think that indigenous people are doing a better job of it than uh, all of the governments of the world. Well, actually, I guess that's that's actually not <laughs> shocking to think about at all, but it is it is rather impressive. Of course, you may be surprised that you haven't heard this before, but really, you shouldn't be because indigenous people are unfortunately left out of many conversations, including often the conservation one. Hopefully, this study will help uh, that to change and people to move forward appreciating the original conservationists who are still making an incredible, huge impact today. 
In non-Indigenous conservation news, the Vermont Fish and Wildlife Department recently began field testing a passive monitoring approach to remotely detecting timber rattlesnakes. This is really exciting. These are snakes that have already been tagged with their passive integrated transponder tags, and known dens were surrounded with this antenna system that would record the tag when the snakes would move across it. In the 13 days that this system was used, seven timber rattlesnakes were detected, four of which had not been detected since 2011, one of which had not been detected since 2013, and two of which had not been detected since 2017. This is really cool, y'all, because it means that there are less people going into the field and less impact to the snake and also less impact to their habitat because of people coming in with gear and stuff. And uh, it's going to give a much better idea of exactly how the population of timber rattlesnakes is doing when they're not running away from, well, slithering away from the humans that are trying to count them and see them and find them. This is a major technological advance that is really going to help with the tracking of this incredibly endangered species. Oh, and it's also good for the humans who don't have to risk getting bitten by a timber rattlesnake, which, like, probably a good idea to minimize all of that. So, go team! Okay, so, for this next story, I don't know if this actually ties into the zoo news story that I said about how community conservation has been on the uptick lately, or if it's just a coincidence, but this is actually a series of stories. Um, a lot of animals have been rediscovered, reappearing, found in places where they thought they no longer were, and it's a series of stories, and I'm just going to rip through them kind of quickly, but it's really cool and, and really encouraging for conservationists. So we're going to start off talking about a giant muntjac that was seen for the first time ever in Cambodia. The large antlered muntjac, which is a critically endangered deer, was discovered on camera trap photos that were taken in Cambodia. Along with this animal that has not been seen in that area before, the survey also recorded a bunch of cool rare species, including Sunda pangolins and red-shanked duke langurs, as well as endangered Asian elephants and doles, which are Asiatic wild dogs and are amazing. These animals were all discovered in Virachi National Park, which is a remote and rugged national park in Cambodia, but doesn't have a lot of protections yet. The hope is that um, these findings will lead the government to protect the lands more because poaching and logging have been a really big problem in this national park, despite the fact that it is a national park and is supposed to be protected from those things. Still, this is great news and hopefully the start of an even bigger conservation story in the park. And hey, talking about animals being in new places again, remember that whole beavers being reintroduced in England thing that we talked about? Well, a baby beaver has been born on Exmoor for the first time in 400 years after two adults that were reintroduced in January mated. That's right, y'all. 400 years, and this is the first time that there has been a baby beaver in this area of England. Along with the excitement of the baby, there's also a lot of excitement about the effect that the beavers are having on this area. Um, they were released, like I mentioned, in January on the estate, and uh, since arriving, they have transformed the unmanaged woodland 
there into an open wetland. This has created diverse habitats that benefit a range of wildlife, including sparrowhawks, gray wagtails, herons, moorhens, kingfishers, and even bats, owls, woodpeckers, a ton of invertebrates, and my personal favorite, otters. Otters have been going back to the site, even though they hadn't been there for a long time. Beavers rock, and now a baby beaver was born. Baby beaver was born. Baby beaver was born. That's fun to say. And sticking with our theme of found lost animals, a chameleon species that I'm going to attempt to pronounce and probably say wrong has recently been rediscovered in Madagascar after not being seen there for a full century. A Volkskau's chameleon, one of the most colorful of all the chameleon species, was recently seen in Madagascar. It's not entirely surprising that they are hard to see, as they have incredibly short lifespans and live in remote environments that are often threatened due to deforestation. However, many scientists have actually expected to find this species again at some point in the last, you know, 100 years, and many are not actually surprised that they found a new one, but in fact that it took them so long to do so. Very little is known about the species, as we didn't do nearly the science that we do now 100 years ago. And with one male currently having been found, there is still a whole lot of questions about how females work and whether there are other ones out there and all that good kind of stuff. But it's really exciting that they found this one male, right? An Illy Pika, also known as a magic rabbit, has been spotted for the first time in 20 years. The animal, which is native to some very remote regions in the northwestern part of China, was first discovered by a conservationist named Li Weidong. He is also the person who managed to capture a picture of this animal after 20 years. Why is that? Well, because Li Weidong is the only person trying to save this species. After discovering them and then watching their populations decline by 70 to 80 percent, he decided that he needed to make sure that he was able to save the species that he had fallen in love with. So in 2014, he organized a team of 20 volunteers to try to track them down and figure out its numbers to help with the conservation. Unfortunately, despite spending most of his own savings to try to make this happen, he was unable to get the Chinese government or conservationists in the area interested in saving the species. If there isn't a push to save this adorable species, they will be gone soon. Fortunately, they are really cute. You should definitely be Googling these guys. And, um, you know, cute means charismatic, and charismatic species are a lot easier to save. So after getting this photograph, the first one in 20 years, we can hopefully uh, use it to raise awareness and start a conservation program that will help save the magic bunny. There's something I never thought I would say seriously on a science podcast. And one more rediscovery for you all, the green broadbill bird, which was declared extinct decades ago, has been spotted anew in Singapore. The bird was sighted on the island of Pulau Ubin towards the end of June. While it is only one bird that has been seen so far, this will hopefully create more awareness, more interest, and get more birders out to the island to non-invasively look and start to figure out if there are more of these animals. Because 
Really, odds are there can't just be one, right? I mean, it could be the last one, but well, that would make me sad. So I'm going to go with there are more of them. And this is a rediscovery. And hopefully, yet again, we will be able to take a population study and figure out the best way to save this species by growing the population. Man, I really like that I got to do a whole segment on just all of the animals that have been rediscovered and refound lately. That was really cool. I feel really positive right now. What a great way to end the conservation news segment of this podcast. In other news, a town in Minnesota has a good reminder for not only its citizens, but all citizens. Uh, don't release your goldfish into lakes, y'all. There's been a problem in general with pandemic pets being returned or released or put into shelters, and apparently that is happening with goldfish as well. And in Burnsville, Minnesota, uh, it's become a real problem. There are goldfish that grow to be the size of two human hands and muck up the water and mess with plants at the bottom of the water and cause all kinds of issues as they are an invasive species. So, um, you know, if, if you have a pet fish, maybe don't release it into the wild. I know, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but uh, maybe someone needs to hear this. I don't know. In what might be my favorite story this week. <laughs> oh, that is such a lie. I talked about baby red pandas. But in what might be the most interesting story of the week, scientists have discovered a frog with glowing bones. The pumpkin toadlet, which lives in Brazil, is a flaming orange toad that is smaller than a nickel and is deaf to the mating calls of its own species, which is, like, obviously not an ideal situation. So scientists started studying this, trying to figure out how deaf to mating calls frogs are, you know, mating, and as they studied the frogs, they found out that the toadlet glows. When examined under UV, ultraviolet, light, the toadlet's back and head glowed blue. The thought is that this might be how the toads communicate with each other, somehow through their bioluminescence, but this gets even crazier. The glow actually comes from a fluorescent skeleton shining through translucent patches of the frog's skin. Yep, that's right, y'all. This toad has a glowing skeleton. More research is still being done because there are kind of two hypotheses as to why this may be the case. If it is discovered that pumpkin toadlets can, in fact, see UV light, then it is believed that this is what they use to attract mates rather than mating calls, which they can't hear. And if not, it is possible that the glowing bones may serve to warn would-be predators of the toadlet's toxicity. All I know is that I think it's really cool that there's a toad with glowing bones. And also that I like the word toadlet. In less cool animal news, it's that time again. The spotted lanternfly eggs should be hatching soon. As you may know, the spotted lanternfly is a ridiculously invasive species that causes a ton of ecological damage, and after being found in Pennsylvania in 2014, has now spread to New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, Ohio, Virginia, and West Virginia. Penn State's College of Agricultural Sciences 
We are. That's where I graduated from. Sorry. Anyway, uh, created something called PestWatch, which is a online tool that uses weather records available for specific dates and durations to provide an estimate of first emergence based on current temperature conditions. And uh, it's time, y'all. They're coming. Not only can the online tool help with management strategies for governments, but as you may remember, the Penn Vet Working Dog Center was working on a spotted lanternfly detection dog, and that dog has since graduated and actually started working on spotted lanternfly detection. So there are a lot of steps being taken to try to get rid of or at least mitigate the damage from this invasive species. I think that might be the first story I've ever shared about hoping that, you know, an animal goes away instead of coming back. Weird. And last but not least, a funny story out of Neenaw, Wisconsin. Last weekend, a building inspector noticed significant damage to the hood of one of the cars in a parking lot across from City Hall. As such, they reached out and contacted the police and insurance agents, not really sure what had happened. Police and the insurance inspector found a dead carp several feet away and determined that the damage was caused by an eagle or other large bird that dropped the fish. The police said there's no way someone could have hit the car with the fish hard enough to do that kind of damage, which might be my favorite quote ever. Uh, it would have had to drop from really far up, so they figure it must have been a bird. What a great, crazy, random, weird, fun story to end other news on. And now it is time for your animal holidays. Keep in mind, it is Wild About Wildlife Month, National Bison Month, and Plastic Free July. This upcoming week is also Coral Awareness Week and National Zookeeper Week. Y'all know I'm a fan of that one. And now for your individual days, on Thursday the 15th, it's I Love Horses Day. Friday the 16th is World Snake Day. Tuesday the 20th is National Moon Day, which I plan on celebrating by thinking about moon bears because they are awesome. And those are your animal holidays for the week. And there you have it, folks. Another incredible week of Rossafari Zoo news. I would like to say thank you to Dr. Zoe Vesley Gross. Kim Cooley, Dr. Natalie Taco, Danny Poirier-Larsen, and Marie Ventrone for sending in stories this week. And remember, y'all, Newsy Credits Backward is Steiderk Yeswen. See, Liz, I did it right this time. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.